Hi, this is Heidi, and this is Parent Town, a podcast where we explore stories of parenting in hopes that they can connect us and maybe make the world a little easier to understand. Welcome to Parent Town. This is Heidi. We had an incredible opportunity to co-host and record an evening with Mike Huber and his podcast called Teaching with the Body in Mind. Our topic was talking to kids about race. And we were also so lucky to gather an incredible panel of parents and experts on the subject. And it just ended up being such a thought-provoking and dynamic conversation. We held the event at Moon Palace Books here in Minneapolis. Enjoy listening. So thanks everyone for coming. So I'm Mike Huber and this discussion is also being recorded for two podcasts. So my podcast is called Teaching with the Body and Mind. And so Heidi Hines, Hills Podcast, <laughs> Parent Town. Both podcasts are worth listening to. It. And we we've been talking for a while about doing a podcast together, and we we're wondering what where's the cross section. And most of my podcast episodes are about movement and things, but obviously race uh, is also about the body. And we've never felt comfortable doing it because me and my three co-hosts are all white, and we thought we need to be part of the conversation, but we shouldn't start the conversation and then invite people. So. We've been like putting that off for a while. I should say for those listening to this on the podcast, we're at Moon Palace Books in Minneapolis. And Angela, the owner, we are talking about the importance of having more racial justice programming here. Was anyone here to see Anastasia Hinklebottom uh, two weeks ago? So yeah, the author of this book, I'll talk about it in a minute. She was here two weeks ago. And then, you know, Angela and I were saying, oh, we should have something after about, you know, that we could continue the conversation. And then... We all showed up. It kind of like was working, <laughs> just kind of stars aligned. So I want to introduce our panelists first. So I guess I'll start at my left. This is Laura Manhill. Hello. And then Nancy Michael. Hello. And uh, Jennifer Gwynn. Hi. And, oh yeah, Martha can't be here. We had another panelist, but um, she had to drop out at the last minute. So... We are going to start talking about how to talk about race with children. We haven't done much talking ahead of time because we were worried that we want to keep it spontaneous. So I'm going to read you two quotes from this book. First, I'll tell you, it's called Not My Idea, a book about whiteness. And so this book is really aimed at families who are white but don't want to be part of white supremacy. Well, you're part of it. Want to help dismantle it. Yes. Yep. Um, so, and one thing we'll say, when you talk about race, you're going to slip, right? So, uh, okay. So the book opens with, when grown-ups try to hide scary things from kids, it's usually because they're scared too. And I think that's just such a great thing, because I know so many people who are afraid to talk about race, because then it has to get into all these icky things, because, well, I'll read the next statement. Because race, you know, race in and of itself isn't a biological thing. There is no such thing as race biologically, and yet it's one of the most important things in our society. Um, the way the author here says it is, skin color makes a difference in how the world sees you 
and how you see the world. And in this, it's a, a white child who sees a police shooting on TV, and the parents sort of say, oh, it's a grown-up thing, you don't have to worry about it, you're safe. In our house, we don't see color. Oh, <laughs> that's a good There we go. That's exactly what I wanted the reaction to be. So, um, which one of you wants to explain why you just reacted that way? Well, like you were saying, you I, this is when you talked about a lot of your podcasts are about the body, and I've been reading a lot of Resma's work. He talks a lot about that your body, you do need to trust your body, and that is part of um, racism and white supremacy. And so, for me, that's triggering because you can see color. It's not about ignoring it and pretending that it's not there. You have to acknowledge it, and then let's talk about it, and let's talk about recognizing differences, but not and not shaming kids. Uh, I mean, you can celebrate your skin color. That's actually a great thing to talk about. In my family, we're all different colors, so <laughs> my daughter has made up different colors for each of us. So, um, and we all even identify a little differently. So, like, I'm multiracial, and I identify as a black woman, but that's not necessarily how the world sees me. And so for someone to say, well, I don't see color, that's like saying, that's a, you're not seeing a piece of me. So then it's almost like you're ignoring something that's a, a very big part of my identity. Um, and so it's kind of invalidating to say that. So I've had difficult conversations about that, you know, even with family members that, and friends that didn't understand that. You know, someone asked me in college, why don't you, if you're half black and half white, why don't you identify as a white woman? And I said, well, that's just not how I see myself, you know? And so, you know, by pushing it to the side is not um, helping anybody. <laughs> so, uh, this is Jennifer. Uh, saying that you don't see color is basically dismissing uh, the fact that I exist. And I think that's extremely offensive uh, to a lot of us because we are proud of our heritage. We, uh, our parents have fought so many years to make sure that we have a stake and a place here. Um, that you saying that, you know, you don't see color basically says that you don't value uh, or embrace the differences in us. Um, you would also be passing the buck on and not taking responsibility of your privilege uh, as a white person to uphold um, diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, and that's something that white folks need to be doing. This is Nancy. Um, I think uh, we went through a phase of colorblind education for quite a while, and I think it was an attempt for um, white teachers, administrators to um, try to figure this out because as white people we are socialized to believe that we are the norm. Everything else is diverse. That's why we speak of a dirty word. Exactly. Yeah. And so when we talk about being socialized into whiteness, um, sometimes we get really offended when we hear that too because we don't think of ourselves as a race. But we are a race and we are socialized into a whiteness that basically um, melted away all of our cultural backgrounds. So we have this thing called whiteness that in a society where whiteness was white superiority, I mean, all of our systems are built on this. And when you're talking about being colorblind, I think it's our attempt to feel comfortable and to not have to dig any deeper because I treat you the same, I treat everybody the same. The truth is we don't. And also children see color. Children see it. And if we don't help children have conversations about it, then um, we are telling them uh, through our silence, we are giving them loud and clear messages that this person is a value, this person is not a value, this, this color people are a value, because kids are sorting 
And if we are not helping them break down the societal messages that are coming about race, then we are just as complicit with our silence or with our just be nice to everybody, which, you know, the Minnesota nice way, right? So, yeah, so um, it's, yeah, it's not helpful to anybody. And truthfully, it makes us not be able to have authentic relationships with people either because um, your ethnicity, your, your race, the construct that we have of race is a huge part of someone's identity, just like gender identity or sexual orientation or age, etc. All right, so the next question then I think is, so we should talk about it, so then how do we talk about it? If there was one easy answer, I think everyone would be, you know, we would just be talking about it by now. Yeah. Um, but part of it is that it's going to be different for everybody. You know, and so this is one I think that we've talked about the term privilege. Because privilege means that you can get away with not thinking about it, not talking about it, right? So, um, speaking from a point of privilege here, uh, no, but as, for instance, I'll, I could use any one of these, I suppose, but as a man, if I was walking to Franklin Avenue tonight in the dark, I wouldn't really think much about it, because the neighborhood's not too bad. But that's because I don't have to think about that. So that's my privilege. And the next part, the next stage of that is awareness about that. So if a family is all white, there is this idea that you can get away with it. But, you know, time and time again, we see that that isn't always the luxury for others. And until everybody starts talking about it, including those you know, who are privileged, it's not really going to change. But I wanted to turn it over and just see, um, I guess how people either already depends, you know, the age of your kids. So maybe you should mention that in this part, because some of you chose in different times to have kids. And so we're in different stages in this. But um, I just want to hear from everyone if what either what you're already doing, what you plan to do, what you wish you had done, any that sort of thing. This is Laura. Um, I have a four-year-old daughter and an eight-year-old daughter. And we've had a lot of conversations, I would say, around books. Um, my four-year-old, well, my eight-year-old, Mira, um, when she was four years old, I feel like that was the time when she really started to become aware of her racial identity. Um, she was, we lived in Brooklyn, New York, and most of the, her teachers and her um, caregivers um, were African-American women. There was a lot of people of color in our neighborhoods and the schools, and so she had developed uh, kind of a normalized, actually, sense around uh, brown and black people, which I thought was really beautiful um, compared to my experience growing up in Minnesota, um, where I always felt like I didn't quite fit in. And so one day I came home and I she was she was coloring herself like with a brown marker. And I was like, what are you doing? And she said, well, mom, I don't want to be cinnamon brown. I want to be dark brown like Miss Geneva, um, who was her daycare provider. And it was just really interesting because she saw being brown as being a beautiful thing and something that she she wanted to be. Um, and I remember my little sister growing up in Minnesota, we were both multiracial, and her wondering about, you know, when I grew up, will I be white? And like, there was always like kind of this feeling of there's so much whiteness around you. And um, and so my daughter kind of had this opposite experience. Um, and it was exciting for me to watch that because I think it helped build her ego strength. And so when we moved to Minnesota, um, when she was five, she kind of looked around and she was like, 
there's a lot of white people here. <laughs> and I was like, there are. You know, and she has a really strong sense of identity. You know, she goes, people I'm from Brooklyn. You know, I'm black. And she was like very, she was just really like open about like talking about like race. And because we talked about things and we read books about um, her ancestors and history. And she wanted to learn about Sojourner Truth and she wanted to learn about Harriet Tubman. She really liked these Who Was books and we started reading those when she was really young, and you know, when she when she learned like, oh, some of my ancestors were slaves, and um, and how and she started crying. I mean, she just was processing all of these things, and I, I'm not going to not talk about that because that's part of who we are and our history. And then, um, so I think by reading books and talking about things, and when we had those kind of experiences and interactions around color and thinking about different shades of color. Um, we bought a book about all the different shades of black um, because some kids at her school were like, well, you're not really black or you're not dark enough or, you know, and she's talked even recently, she's in the third grade now, she said, well, all the popular girls at my school are lighter than me. So she's aware of that. She's making those observations. I'm not telling her these things. So kids are aware of that. And so I just, I don't tell her what to think. We just, and she brings things up and we talk about it. And, but I, I definitely feel like it's important to um, give her opportunities to explore lots of different ideas. Um, books are one way to do it. And we also try to put ourselves in spaces with people that are not the same as us. That, um, we're part of a group called Million Artist Movement, and they do a lot of um, art making that's intergenerational and community events. Um, this weekend we were at Indigenous People's Day and making quilt squares uh, for the encampment and um, doing doing things in different communities because um, art making is a great way to, to do things together in community and I found that it's given us opportunities to meet people and to interact with people that we may not have and so I bring her to all of the things that I go to and um, so it's given my kids I think opportunities to, to just meet different people. Um, this summer we spent uh, eight weeks working at a daycare on Lake Street. My husband's a muralist and we are creating a mural at IEO. Ayeo uh, Child Care Center and Ayeo means um, his grandmother in Somali and you know it was just a really beautiful experience I mean the culture uh, is different than my own culture but there's a lot of commonalities and you know my kids felt very much at home at this daycare um, because we spent so much time there doing art projects and you know working on the mural and so being in community with people I think is also just a great way to because when you're doing something with someone else um, you, ha you start to build like solidarity and you know and when you get to know people from different communities when someone else is speaking about that community in a way that you don't feel is right you're like wait you know my friend doesn't do that or you know I have friends who are Somali and you know this is actually so you can stand up for people because those are your friends so I guess making sure my kids are in diverse diverse spaces <laughs> Uh, so this is Jennifer Winmore. Um, I identify as an Asian Pacific Islander. Um, I have a biracial child, so she is white and also uh, Asian Vietnamese. Um, so just some backstory about my family experience. Uh, my parents uh, immigrated, well really, they, they were refugees from Vietnam after the war. And so uh, it was extremely traumatic experience going from a country that you love to a country where everyone hates you. So they they had a really hard time with racism and once we came around they basically wanted us to erase our culture so i mean my name's jennifer uh they wanted me to speak english they wanted me to 
not learn the language, not understand any of that. Um, and I come from a family of uh, 14, so there's seven brothers and four sisters, so all ranging from different understandings of our culture, from folks who have lived in Vietnam for decades, and me living in uh, the U.S., not having any understanding of that. So I struggled with that a lot, and now having a child, I know how important it is to make sure that she understands her culture and that she embraces it. So I really push that on her at a young age before she can resist it. <laughs> so, and then I want to make sure that she understands her Caucasian um, side as well. So we're doing as much as we can to, to really educate her on that. So um, I'm trying to teach her Vietnamese as much as I understand. Taking her to community events and like getting her to meet a lot of the amazing uh, Vietnamese activists that are out in the Twin Cities areas. Because it's not just about our race, it's about what can we do to build each other up and also build our entire community up. And I think it's really important that we do that uh, at a young age and like really ingrain that in them so that they understand this is just a way of life. Um, and that I want her to be proud of who she is and understand um, that being different is not a huge deal. This is Nancy. Um, I have a blended family. So I have a white son from a former marriage who is 27 now married to an African-American man, and we have two biracial children who are 18 or 19 and 17. Um, it's been interesting because with my first child, um, I was a single mom after he was one, and I honestly didn't think about race because I didn't have to. And we live in a really segregated community, so you really don't have to. And then I just happened to fall in love with a black man. And I thought, you know, I was raised with a family that said, you know, we were open, we judge people by the content of their character, et cetera, et cetera, until I brought home my husband. And then um, things fell apart. And in fact, I didn't even invite my parents to our wedding. So things have changed over the years, but it's been interesting. Also watching my white son be raised by a black man. And not many um, white men get that opportunity. And so we've spent a lot of time talking about race. Your child's going to get all she needs about her white side, trust me. <laughs> um, children's literature, you name it, TV shows, whatever, right? Um, but it's been interesting to watch the change, and in the last few years, I mean, children's literature is fabulous. Um, I do want to caution you to look for authentic voice, because um, when we started 27 years ago, you know, all the books with characters of color were written by white people, because yeah. that was all the big publishers would publish. Yeah. Now, with self-publishing and smaller publishers, you can actually find fantastic, beautiful books mm -hmm. written from authentic voice, illustrated from um, artists with a, from the authentic voice that they've experienced. And so, books are fabulous. Um, Movies are great, too. Just make sure that when you do read and when you watch the movies together that you talk about them. That's one of the biggest things. And I just wanted to say, um, because my career also is in this, in race and ethnicity and in, uh, intersectionality of identities and children and all of that, but one of the biggest deterrents to a child taking in bias is their caregivers, their loved ones, mm -hmm. their families' relationships with people of different mm -hmm. racial backgrounds. So the more your child interacts with you, where she feels safe or he feels safe, with people who are different, mm -hmm. um, the more that child categorizes safe, safe, safe. The more their experiences are just from TV or just from the news or my first experience I can remember is driving <coughs> into the big city and lock your doors. You know, we categorize those things in what I call our lizard brain and they're there the rest of our lives after age seven. So the younger we can start experiencing, talking about it, 
Um, and not, not just waiting for kids to bring it, bring it up, but initiating conversations about all sorts of differences, whether it's uh, ability or whether it's um, gender, it's, et cetera. But the more we talk about this with our kids, the more they experience, the less bias they develop. And maybe we can finally break the cycle that keeps just repeating and repeating over and over again in this country. For me, well, my child's 14, and I guess I lucked out because I started working with Nancy a bit around that time. So as my child was growing up, I wanted to make sure we talked about skin color, whether it's white or other people. We, when we're in different environments, still talking about the different different cultures and things, and have, you know, meeting friends of different cultures. For us, it was kind of the arts world as well, theater world, and meeting a lot of people. And in spaces where I always feel like it was generally this safe space where all the kids were kind of running around. There is a grown-up somewhere helping, you know, keeping an eye on them, sort of. And while everyone's, like, working, you know, frantically on getting stuff done before the show. So there was always that mixture of races, gender, identities, uh, sexual orientations, and so it was just sort of this common thing. So as my child got to an age, because what I find most interesting is we made race something we could talk about. I guess that's the main takeaway I hope people get from this, is it's something we all should talk about and kids can talk about. Because for us, then my child would start to notice when there was disparity, you know? So five, six, seven, when it's sort of like, wait, like, why is, who's missing? That's what I, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, we had that experience with Disney princesses because <laughs> my daughter had met, we, when we moved from Brooklyn, I keep talking about this, but in Brooklyn, my friend had this group that was called Your Queens, it was this African royalty group, and we went to this event, and she met all these African queens and royalty, and then we come to Minnesota, and someone gives her this Disney sticker book, and she was like, where are all the black princesses? And she was like, don't they know them? <laughs> she was like, we need to call Disney because there's only one. It's like Tiana. And she's like, and she's not even a princess for most of the movie. She's a frog. Right? So, so I, there's like always being a critical consumer, I, I guess, of media, you know, so that like whose voice is missing or who has power in this conversation. We, we do, in my work, we do a lot of that. Um, and Early Bridges, it's a critical literacy program uh, through the Children's Theater Company, and we really always are looking at, you know, the narratives and kind of examining, hmm, that's interesting that that character didn't have a voice, or, you know, what was their role in that? Yeah, and I can tell you that my 14-year-old, whenever we go to see something, who was missing that? We just saw the sequel to Mamma Mia last night, it's like, my child's like, oh, it was so great, and, you know, there's, you know, actually, you know, some of the scenes... There were, you know, were people of color, there's a person in a wheelchair, but all the main characters are still white, right? You know, so it's just that, yep. but always that understanding of noticing who's there and who's not there. Um, so, did you... Uh, can I just add Yeah, that? yeah, please. So, yeah, so the noticing, and that's something that, that my kids did. And, and um, being critical consumers, I love that. But also noticing when there are injustices around them. Um, my oldest son um, had a very... Um, interesting journey through education, I'll just put it that way. He was an alternative child. Whenever he got in trouble for standing up for someone else, which was most of the time when he got in trouble, I was so proud of him. <laughs> and we would go to bat. But it was usually an injustice like, you know, the teacher was treating him unfairly. She does it every day. You know, my other daughter came home and said, you know, I won't use the name, Miss, I'll say Lila, kicks one of the black boys out of class every single day, Mom. She doesn't like them. And when you hear something like that as a white parent, 
I feel it's your responsibility to go talk to somebody about it. So you go talk to the principal and you say, look at the suspension or the in-school suspension or the, the trips to the principal's office and start tracking that because you've got an issue. Your kids are noticing it. Because if we think that our kids aren't noticing who the teacher is watching for who's going to get in trouble, um, we're sadly mistaken because our kids notice. And just like when you're talking about bullying and if somebody's getting mistreated, nobody feels safe, well, that's the same thing with racial bullying, and there's a lot of it going on in our schools. And so um, you raise your kids to be social justice warriors. You raise your kids to go and tell somebody when they can't handle it, because these kinds of issues, kids can't handle, but their parents can. And when they tell you, believe it. That's the biggest thing I can say. Because um, our kids want to do the right thing. They have this innate empathy and justice, and it, it's like growing up that pounds it out of you. So, but the more we can talk about it, the more we can um, engage in those conversations, the more they will come to you because you're a safe person for which they can try and figure out the world or seek help. I want to interject here more as a um, early childhood educator, first and talk about a little bit about how kids process things in the first eight years of their life because I think it's important because sometimes things come out in ways that can embarrass grown-ups and you can have that same effect of shutting a kid down because you're too embarrassed. So one thing you talked about is bringing up. So when you're reading a book, mention who you see pictures. Um, and, and talk about them, who's there, who's not there. And make sure your books have people there, of course. <laughs> but but, but it's okay if there's not, you yeah. can talk about it, I right, guess. Right. Yeah? So yeah, exactly. It's not like you... Every book is not going to be completely reflective of right, right. every no, identity. And some of them have. Yeah, okay. it's just so planned. Yeah. <laughs> but there's so much more than there used to be. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So then the other thing to think about is um, children have a limited vocabulary. So when they first start talking about things, it doesn't come out in a way that seems to make sense. So there's a toddler teacher I used to work with. And I was trying to think, I hadn't, didn't have a chance to ask her if I could use her name. So I would call her Nissa. Um, but Nissa was from Togo, and most of our teachers at the time were white, and Nissa was black, English was her fourth or fifth language, and she stood out in a way. But it was great when she first started volunteering for me, because uh, she was working on her certificate to become a teacher. She'd come in a few hours a day, and one day before she came in, this one kid said to me, I don't like Nissa. Or no, sorry. That, that's a grown-up way to say I hate Nessa. And I said, why? I said, well, she has funny hair. And so this is one of those ones, as of, like, 20 years ago, I would have just been, oh, no, you know, we treat everyone the same, and it brings that everyone's different hair. Whatever, but I just said, oh, her hair is different than the people you know, isn't it? And he just stopped and said, yeah. So I gave him different, a different way to think about it, you know. And then I asked, what do you think her hair will look like today? And I thought again, I don't know. And she showed up with cornrows for the first time. And so she showed up and another kid said, oh, she has lines on her head. You know, and then um, she explained they were cornrows and things. But that child who said, I hate Nyssa, about three days later, you know, right before she came, because she came the same time every day, I, was, I wonder what her hair's going to be like today. Mm -hmm. You know, and it was that thing of, because I didn't shut him down, he was able to find words that he could use, because all he was really saying, the word hate comes up when it means they don't understand it, don't like it, it seems different. Um, the other word that comes up a lot is fair, and fair 
doesn't mean fairness in the ter terms of equity. Kind of means like I remember they'd sit down at the table and they'd be like, "Oh, there's more boys than girls here today. It's you know, it's not fair. It just means equal, like literally mathematically equal." <clears throat> so they'll often use words that as grown-ups we have a lot of emotion around, and they will use it just like, "Oh." Uh, other example of Nissa that I wanted to give is that when she started working with toddlers, because that's where the story started, uh, there was a child, I can't remember now, but uh, Asian American, who was visiting with his mom. When they walked in, one of the toddlers, who didn't have a lot of words, just sort of pointed and said, Ani, which was the name of the only other Asian American kid in the school. Again, could have been an embarrassing thing of like, oh no, that's not Ani, you're confused. But she knew, oh, you're noticing that his hair, skin, his hair color and skin color are the same as Ani's. Yeah, they are. And so she immediately gave words to it. And that's all the child was trying to do. Um, a lot of times grown-ups have this way of... You project our yeah. fears on the children. And then you're shutting them down. And like the worst thing we can do is, is make the kids feel shame yes. or uh, for what they're thinking or feeling, you know, because yeah. then they're not going to share and then that's definitely not going to help break down some of those biases, so. Yeah, and I think if people are brave enough, we can talk about a time when our own kids said something. I don't have one off the top of my head, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, I shouldn't have said this. Does anyone have one off the top of their head? Something that they said that was inappropriate, or? Yeah, where as an adult, you kind of wanted to shut them down, but instead you thought, no, this is what they're trying to say. My daughter was trying to explain... Um, different, or where did race come from, and, uh, and you know, there's so many different ways that she's probably heard it explained to her, so she was like, she started off with, like, race is just horrible, and she's like, well, I don't mean horrible, I mean, like, when people are treating each other, this is my eight-year-old, uh, when people are treating each other uh, differently because of their race, that's horrible, and then she... And I said, okay, say more. And then she was like, well, you know, like some people are albino. And I was like, okay. And they don't have pigmentation. And then she's like, but really, we're all black. And she says that a lot. She'll say, well, we're all black because everybody came from Africa. And so she says that a lot because she'll be like, they don't, and if somebody is not treating other people correctly, they just don't know much about the world, is what she said, because we're all black. And so, so and she had heard a lot of, language, especially around, uh, about black people during the past election season, and she was like, you know, there was a lot of things on television, and she was really trying to process that, and she was like, well, they just must not know black people, because they were talking about black neighborhoods, and I come, I live in a really nice neighborhood, and, you know, she was, she was really trying to, um, I think right now, of, there's a lot of like stereotypes, and so I think she's starting to try to figure that out, and and then she's been talking a lot about kids at school and how some kids are lighter than her and they're more popular, and trying to negotiate that. And so what I've been doing the most recently is just kind of listening instead of trying to. Sometimes when she goes into her explanations of why things are the way they are, or the, you know all of the facts around different racial categories and things like that. Sometimes I try to listen instead of interrupting her. And so just let her kind of work through her. Because when she first started to say 
started talking about the pigmentation and then, you know, that she was trying to explain kind of how racial identities were formed and so I, I try to just listen to her concept of what she understands and then we can go from there. Um, because, I mean, I don't have all the answers either and I try not to pretend that I do so, <laughs> so that she knows that, you know, I don't have the answer to all of these issues we have around race and identity and why things are the way they are. And so I don't know if that exactly answered your question, but I guess I just try to give her space to process some of those things. Sure. I was just going to say I don't have much to say because my daughter is almost two years old, so I'm not the expert on this panel. <laughs> None of us are, though. No. Yeah. We're all working together to figure it out, right? Everybody. <laughs> I was just thinking about identity. Um, and um, so my biracial children, my son, who's 19, identifies as an African-American man. My daughter identifies as biracial. Um, and it's been interesting over the years, the labels that people have put on them, or tried to put on them, and just the frustration. For the longest time, um, my son would get so mad because people would say, are you Mexican? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I would, you know, yeah, and I would say to him, well, you know, it's not a bad thing to be no. Mexican, not knowing how to navigate this. He's like, but that's not what I am, you know. And then my daughter, um, her white friends, keep saying, well, you're not really black. Yep. And she says, tell that to my dad. Right. So, yeah. But it's just, it's that, it has nothing to do with them, it has more to do with people finding comfort with them, you know, and my daughter, my son has had, I think, one white friend his entire life, I can think of it, think of him right now, my daughter is kind of all over the place, but he really identifies with being a person of color and hanging with people of color, those are just his chosen friends and his identity. And my daughter, you know, is, like I said, she says, I'm always their black friend. You know, it's always the white girls and, you know, I'm their black friend. Um, and my husband calls her friends the Heathers, if anybody knows that one. <laughs> 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 so, oh not, not great. But it's been interesting in our house. My husband is 63, and so he grew up in Indianapolis in an all-black neighborhood with black-owned businesses and black-owned homes and black is beautiful, and had um, relatives who were in the Panthers, and just, it was just that time of pride, and then now there's a highway through it. But it's interesting, um, the messages he got growing up compared to like younger African-American people that didn't get to live in that experience, you know, people who lived in Rondo before, you know, the highway went through, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's been interesting for him to share with our kids, you know, that, no, we have had this. We have had these things before. It's just, it gets, keep, you know, they just keep taking it away or they just keep destroying it. And so um, we've had a lot, of, uh, a lot of conversations, probably just as much about social justice as race and, like, what race means in this country and um, what race is used for, how it's weaponized in this country. But the whole identity thing, you know, if you, uh, if you have children uh, who have friends who are children of color, you know, just we as white people can stop labeling people because it's really not our job. But we do it to feel comfortable, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I think the other idea that it's important to also um, allow people to choose their identity, mm -hmm. right? How do you identify yourself? But it also means, as white people, that puts their responsibility on us, too. Since we're at a bookstore, I'll mention um, Paul Kival, I think is his name, has a book called Uprooting Racism, How White People Can Work for Racial Justice. 
And in the first chapter, he talks about, he's a white man, and trying to do a discussion group. And they say, okay, so I want to break up people of color on this side and white people on this side. Let's have, we'll answer these questions, and then we'll come back as a group. And he said that nobody would say, well, I don't really belong here. I'm not white, I'm Italian. Or I'm not white, I'm a gay white man. Yeah. You know, and there's all these reasons why he couldn't identify as white. And I think it's important that we own that, you know, that we're white. And, and you know, my ancestors, so my immediate family didn't come to America until about 1920, about 100 years ago. But there are people with my same last name, so probably related to us back in what's now Germany, who were uh, founders of New Ulm. If anyone knows anything about the history of New Ulm in the Dakota, um, it's not pleasant, you know? And there are probably um, people I am distantly related to who killed Dakota. And, we're all on Dakota land, and, yeah. and I mean, all of us, I mean, we have not honored any of our treaties, um, and as Americans, I mean, I think that's something that, that's a whole other conversation, and there's so many things that we were never taught in school, and if you look at even the history of Fort Snelling, um, and our perspectives on that, I mean, kids go to the to Fort Snelling as like a field trip, and they're told a lot of different things, and I know they're working to add more narratives to that, but if I went on the Bedote field trip with my mom last year through the Minnesota Humanities Center, and it's referred to on that trip, which is um, led from an indigenous perspective, as a concentration camp. Mm -hmm. And so I think being honest, you know, about those things, and there was a kid on that trip too, and some people were like, oh, why would, you know, they do these trips for kids, because I think it is important for kids to, um, it's it's not as, nothing is as simple as we would like it to be, right? So no matter who we are, there's like, a lot of complexities that we have to like recognize, I guess. So I'm always trying to think about myself, even in some of my because we all have racism and white supremacy. It's it's in, it's in our bodies, and so that's why we keep doing these things. So it is hard to unlearn a lot of the history and the things that we believe about each other. So um, and that's everybody. So I think that's something that I personally am working on. That, um, is how do I kind of decolonize? my thinking, or there are things that I've normalized that are not the correct, or, you know, there's there's problematic things. So I think it's, I think uh, the best thing for, as a, as a parent or and a, a caregiver is to demonstrate to kids that you're always learning and we're always, you know, trying to be a better person. <laughs> so that's what I try to, you know, I don't know, I don't have all the answers. <laughs> Yeah, and I think it's important, uh, the book, not my idea that I showed at the beginning, the point of that book is for that child realizing racism isn't this child's idea, or in my case, I say racism isn't my idea, but I live with the benefits of racism. You know, I have, you know, the, whatever, the credit history I have because, you know, my family wasn't redlined. I have, you know, all these things that I benefit from. So even though it's not my idea, I, I still have to figure out what to do myself. And this idea, I'm not really going to talk about white fragility uh, myself, but I'll talk about white guilt. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's exactly the conversation we almost had earlier. But white guilt, the idea, like when you have that idea of guilt, what you're doing is you're making it about you again. Right? So, oh, there's this thing about racism, but 
I didn't do it, and so can you please make me feel better? You know, so it's this idea that you bring it back to yourself instead of figuring out what you can do to help. You know, because everyone here can help, even if you didn't start the problem. You know, if we waited, if we tried to find the person who started the problem. <laughs> well, <laughs> there's a lot of people, and it's, it is on, it's on us. I guess I, I keep thinking that too. It's like if we don't do something about when you see injustice, then, I mean, you're saying it's okay. Yes. Um, okay, well, just when, they, um, when we're talking about reading books about differences, too, one of the things you really have to be careful of is when you're reading books and, and finding materials about people of color, that it's not always about oppression. Yeah. Um, yes. I can't tell you how many times my kids came home and it's like, oh my God, we're learning about slavery again. <laughs> you know, like four years in a row. You're right. And it was like, seriously, but in the Black History Month, we have a little bit of, you know, foreign vendors and yeah. whatever, right? <laughs> Do some research because I mean, really, this country was yes, it was slavery's economic engine, and there were brilliant minds that have created a lot of what we have today, um, people of color. So, and just stories about people. But anyway, um, one of the reasons that this conversation doesn't go any farther than it does with white people and where we can talk about is a thing called white fragility. And there's a fantastic book out there on the shelf by Robin D'Angelo. Um, she's the country's leading thought person. Um, <laughs> White fragility, I've got all the good words. <laughs> um, so white fragility is that, that piece that truthfully is bullying. We shut down a conversation with things like, um, I didn't intend that, it wasn't my intention. Impact versus intention, intention means nothing, right? Yes. <laughs> also, um, I don't feel safe here. When you're in a workplace and someone is talking about racism and this happened and it was a racist thing and the person that committed whatever it was doesn't feel safe, honestly, whose job is at stake? Most likely the person of color. So our feeling of not feeling safe is kind of laughable when you look at what's happening to communities of color in our society. But we go there. We've got a million little uh, things that we put up, roadblocks we put up that stop the conversation. Stop the conversation because it's all about us feeling uncomfortable, because that's part of being socialized into whiteness, is that we should feel comfortable everywhere. We get ticked off when we divide the group into people of color and white people, because that group looks more interesting than my group, right? And I should be welcome everywhere. We don't have to worry about traveling the world because it's all been laid out for us. But one of the pitfalls of the socialization of whiteness, with that message that the world has made for us, when we don't get what we think is ours, then we have to blame somebody else also. And so that's how we get this other, and they're taking our jobs, and they're doing this, and they're doing that. Because as white people, we've been conditioned to believe that it's all here for us. That we are the norm, that we are humanity, and everything else is diverse around us. And so we've got to just uh, be humble and break that crap open because it's false. And it's keeping us in bondage also. So if we don't realize that all of our liberation is tied together and it's not just we should help out with equity and we should be concerned about race. No, it's not a should, it's a has to. Um, or you know, we're gonna thoughts or no So anyway, that's my soapbox. I'll step off now. So what I wanted to know is um, just give everyone like the last your last word of like what so I think about what you hope to do with, with your child. So we talked about, like, none of us has the answer, but it's more about the idea of talking. So, um, I don't know, what's, like, one last thought about, and it 
don't worry about the people here. Think about you and your child instead, if you want, if that helps. Like, what would you want to do? What, what's your hope for your child? And, and assuming that we can't just solve everything, but more like, what do you think you want to do with your child? Yeah. Tell him. I'll start. You start. Yeah, I'll start. So, um, I did a big thing last year, and I decided to run for office. Uh, I, I ran for Ramsey County Commissioner um, for a lot of different reasons. A lot of the structures that create policies for uh, Black, Indigenous, people of color are just killing our lives. Um, so, I wanted to make sure that we had representation uh, where we were, uh, and I would have been the first Asian Commissioner and the first Vietnamese elected official in the state of Minnesota. Um, a lot of that pushed me uh, because of my daughter, just seeing that we needed some sort of representation and someone there to lead for our community, community that's been there for 40 years and hasn't had representation. Um, so those are things that I try to do is step out of my comfort zone and be out there and show her this is mine, I'm taking it because I need to take up my space as a woman of color. Um, so I do that a lot. I, I make sure representation is huge for her. So books, videos, being proud of herself. Um, another big thing that I'm really into is, um, as an Asian person, I know it's really hard for the Asian community to get away from anti-blackness. And I think it's a huge problem um, that we, you know, unconsciously or, or consciously um, do. And so I wanna make sure that we uh, talk about that and really uplift black and brown folks before us because I do have some privilege. And that's really hard for me to say, um, but I, I recognize that I have privilege and need to make sure that she understands that as well. Okay. <laughs> oh gosh. Well, just recently my, my daughter said to me, mom, not everything is about race. And my response to her was, yes it is. <laughs> and so um, what I hope for her is that this world is gonna change, um, that we're gonna have massive change in the right direction. I don't know, I just, I just have to keep fighting. You know, I mean, I feel like I have the privilege to keep fighting and to keep, you know, pulling white folks aside and saying, hey, you know, or speaking in front of white folks and saying, hey. And the more that we can do that, I think the more that um, all of our children are gonna benefit. And I just hope for my kids that um, the world becomes a lot nicer than it is right now. Uh, it's funny, because in some ways I have that two part, because part of it is what I hope my child does. And then yeah. part of it's my own. You know, for me, I hope to continue working with young children and with teachers of young children to figure out how to best work with kids and parents. But also at my church, I've been helping create curriculum. And so I'm Unitarian, and we had our class about Unitarian history and rewriting it so that it wasn't the eighth week when we talk about Blacks, and, you know, Black Unitarians, it's like, but they never said white the whole time. It's that whole assumed mm -hmm. thing. So now every single person that's introduced, they are described at, by their gender and race. And turns out that, you know, really, it's mostly rich white men. Great Unitarianism, who knew? Um, it's important to talk about the contributions, you know, good contributions that Unitarians, you know, brought to our society, but at the same time also acknowledge they also have, you know, a lot of time on their hands because they weren't the ones, you know, uh, in the factories or the fields or whatever. So, anyways, but, you know, being, trying to bring that awareness wherever I go. Um, with my own child, one of, like, the things that was so cool to see, my child likes to write and, you know, has two artist parents, so actually will, like, workshop their writing with 
published authors sometimes. And they think it's important to have you know, a lot of representation of different people, whether it's um, you know, racial identity, cultural identity, uh, gender identity, etc. But then they have that problem of, but I want to have an authentic voice for a person of color. And then it's like, well, you're workshopping with you know, this author. It's like, yeah, but I don't want to ask her to be the one black person to read my work to see if the black people sound it. And, and I also don't want to only write about white people. So I want to have people of color in my work, and I don't want it to come across stereotypical, but then I also don't want to rely on one person. And I said, well, you're 14, and if you just said what you said to me, <laughs> to her, she'll be okay. She'll know that you don't think of her as the only one, but she will help you work through some of that, you know? And so, and it's someone who works a lot with youth. In fact, it's the first person who ever talked to my child in a way that recognized their um, neurodiversity. Um, my child's autistic, and we met in a theater, and it was really loud, and my child just was shutting down. And she was just like, let's go outside. And they went outside and talked, you know? And it was just like that thing. I'm like, wow, she figured out what my child needed at that moment, you know? And so it's like, if you just tell her that, like, you know, when you're 14, like, she gets that, like, you haven't figured out how to talk about race in this way that most published authors still haven't figured out, as you were saying, you know, you read books where there's best intentions, and yet, you know, so anyway, so those are, the, those are two things. Um, so I guess I hope for both my children um, to continue to... I guess fulfill whatever purpose that they have in the world and to feel like everything that they dream for themselves is possible. Um, whether that's my oldest wants to be an author, illustrator, um, and then the president, um, and then my youngest is four, and it, it kind of varies from being like a rock star singer to like a bus driver, librarian, so you never really know. Kind of depends on the day, but um, I, I want them to know that anything is possible and that um, there are not, that we can break through the, uh, any limitations that they see um, and that it's not just their responsibility to change the world, but it's all of our responsibilities and that there's community um, and that community, I guess I want to continue to build that sense of, um, I guess, moving away from only, I think, a lot of times we take on a lot as individuals, and um, I think we all have a lot of strengths where we can support each other, and there's a lot of things we've forgotten um, as we've been socialized and normalized and in a white supremacist society that's very, can be very oppressive. Um, it's, it's bad for all of us, and so I want them to um, feel free, and I want them to feel that they have a community behind them to support them and that they don't have to solve all the problems by themselves. <laughs> so, and yeah, just that they can live a, a world in a world of joy and possibility um, no matter what. Well, I want to thank everyone. So first, thanks to Moon Palace for having this event and I hope they have more. I know they certainly want to. And so keep an eye on their calendar. Um, and thanks to Laura and Nancy and Jennifer. And thanks to Heidi for recording this. Um, I hope the recording turns out. Uh, and thanks to everyone for coming. And um, do we have like five minutes? If there's any questions, is would that be okay? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's oh, it's seven.
7.30. It's 7.29. Okay. Yeah, We've yeah. like one minute. <laughs> okay. I was curious about what everybody was thinking. Yeah. So. Does anybody have any questions for us? Yeah. All right. Um, I don't know how this relates to children per se, but I see this dance happening between um, people's expectations of what they want to be as an individual and what people see them as. And, you know, is everybody supposed to look at people the same? That's not quite right. Um, is everybody supposed to be, be very identifying people as far as what their identity is, but then there are going to be presumptions happening there? How do you figure that dance out? Because it's just kind of a big jumble mess. You know what I mean? I want to be respectful. How would you like people to approach your children from an outside person just walking into the situation? In terms of identity? Well, I mean, my daughter, her name is Sarah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it seems like, I mean, I wouldn't walk up to somebody, like, somebody's child and have to identify them. But the thing is, we do that with children of color. Yeah, I mean, you know, in the grocery store, having someone come up and say, um, homegrown or store-bought. Seriously. You know, seriously, right? You wouldn't do that to white children or coming up and touching somebody's hair or things. It, you know, we white people tend to want to, like, just say or label these things. You know, we just need to stop doing that, yeah. or just say, hi, what's your name? Yeah, you know? just have a relationship with someone. Yeah, exactly. And then if somebody, when you build trust with someone, then they're going to be likely to share those things mm -hmm. with you. So I think if you just start a conversation yeah. and just get to know someone, and then if they feel like sharing a more about their identity or their yeah. culture, then then I think it's different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And I would say that it's always important that you, you introduce yourself first. Mm -hmm. Like, hi, I'm Mike. You know, it's nice to meet you, or you look like you're having fun, or whatever, you know, the context is. I'm often going into classrooms, because I supervise teachers now, so I don't necessarily know all the kids. So I'll go in, and I'll make sure, like, I'll introduce myself, because I can't remember. I only remember the names of the ones that the teachers are worried about. You know? uh, so, uh, so, but I think it's important to introduce yourself, and then... It's a conversation from there, right? So the reason I ask is because I'm a substitute teacher and I oh. primarily work with young children. Yeah. Uh, but there's also current children in there, Somali children in there as well. So I see this dance between mm -hmm. them as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's just a really interesting mm -hmm. dynamic, you know, to you know. Yeah. But it is hard because, you know, you don't want to label, but you right. also want to be respectful of certain cultures. Yes. And there's all these different variations. So Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I've never identified, or people don't see me as a Vietnamese person, they always see me as a Hmong person or Mexican or indigenous person, um, so definitely don't identify yourself, you know, don't identify for them. And I don't know how old the kids are, but you can, you can ask and see if they get offended or not. Um, but yeah, I think the take home is don't assume what they are. Have to lead with that. Like that doesn't have to be like a leading question, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, uh, but I also like the impulse yeah. that you want to talk about. That it is yeah. something you can talk about. And, so you can even like, kids will do that. I mean, oh, kids course. will say, "What are you?" Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and and you know that's kids wanting to know. You know, and when they have that relationship, depending on. You know how the kid feels, they'll answer it, right? Or not. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, and now we definitely have to end. So we will continue the conversation. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Parent Town. You can find the book, Not My Idea, a book about whiteness by Anastasia Higginbotham at your local bookstore. Please go there first. 
or on Amazon, uh, check out our website at www.parent-town.com. Like us and share the podcast on Facebook with your community. We really appreciate that. You can listen to us where you listen to all your podcasts under Parent Town Podcast. If you really want to be a Parent Town rock star, it really helps us if you can rate us on iTunes. That gets more listeners. If you have an idea for a show, we would really love to hear from you, so don't be shy. Thank you to Greg Ward at Studio Arcade and to Park States for our theme music. Again, thank you for listening. I'm Heidi, and this is Parent Town.